I've thrown away more RAM than I had in all of the 90s. That's exactly right, right? <laughs> like, I just, you'd, 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 you know, 32 megs would cost yeah. about four or five zillion dollars, and you had to worry, and the, the good programmers had to worry about all that. Yep. And they, you know, are we their little annoying garbage children? Yeah, sure, yeah. that is it. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. This is Ben Popper here, Director of Content at Stack Overflow. I'm here with my lovely co-hosts, Paul and Sarah. Both of you have made that transition for being you know, individual contributors and creating your own projects to managing teams of engineers. You want to talk to me a little bit about what that's like? Hmm. I, you know, I'm going to say something controversial. The best coder in the world will not have a fraction of the impact as an amazing manager. No, that's real. Yeah. yeah, I mean, especially like a tr like someone who can scale up a team and make it productive. Yeah, like here's a good example: Don Knuth, who yeah. did the art of computer programming and mm. a lot of like early some early foundational algorithms work. Or there was a cohort in like the 50s and 60s and early 70s. Yeah, who were able to just lay the foundation. Yeah, like the but gang of four. Yeah, we're all just pushing a little further these yeah. days. Like there's yeah. not a lot. There's there's only so much you can do, mm. Mm. and so. In general, I think that the whole industry is a reaction to that. Like you're going to, yeah, a team's going to get to do more. Yeah. The, there are very few super geniuses and there's very few roles where super geniuses matter. Yeah. Yeah. I had that same experience where like I thought um, I'll never be a manager. Being a manager is quitting. Managers are, you know, oh, like, yeah. The dark side. It's like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Because like if you're a coder, you're like, I'm going to code every day, all day. And if I become a manager, that's quitting. You know, right. it, it might be tricky. Like as a woman, it feels yeah. like you stepping off of code island onto manager island also yeah. has a lot of ramifications. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It actually, to, to be honest, for me. Be the, honest. Yeah. Sarah. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't just spew your lies like the rest of this podcast. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a much safer space. It's a much safer space because you no longer have to deal with the back and forth and everyone looking at your code for trying to find a mistake. Like, and like, it's so funny. Like when I have hired teams, I have had to make a really serious effort to hire men. And everyone is always like, oh, we can never find female software developers. You know, it turns out super easy. Yeah. It's just like get female management. They mm -hmm. know, like they know mm -hmm. how to hire women. They know how to find them. So what you can do is you can also create an environment where that's not accepted. Like the person going and looking at everyone else's code to nitpick, that's not a right. You can make an environment where people empower each other, they learn from each other. And if it's an environment of learning, you know, instead of criticizing, it's, hey, have you, do you know this? Have you noticed this thing? Mm -hmm. So I found it. I found it great. That's awesome. I don't know. I never felt like much of a coder. I still don't feel like much of a manager. I still don't know <laughs> if I'm really a CEO. I mean, it's like, how the hell are you ever anything ever? The imposter syndrome is strong. With it's not an imposter. I just feel that all these roles are completely arbitrary. And mm. this is more fundamental for me, frankly. And this is something I have a lot of trouble articulating. It's always been blurry. I always thought of myself as a writer. And then I'm like, technology is interesting. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'm not the strongest. I'm a very, like, I'm a sweet person and I'm good uh, outward facing and so my co-founder is the person who does a lot of the operational stuff at Postlight. And that's like totally de facto. Like I'm talking out, I'm on this podcast, right? And then mm. day to day, people are coming to me to talk to me and ask advice and, and get input. And I have control over people's lives. And I try to be really, really mindful of that. But 
No, for the most part, I delegate my responsibility pretty well. I face outward, and I assume that other people are going to lead pretty strongly, and that works pretty well. So it's like I decided not to just not to freak out about it too much. Mm-hmm. You sound like a great chaos Muppet. Do you know about Muppet oh, sure. Theory? Yeah, it sounds like you might be a chaos Muppet with lots of awesome order Muppets. Near. Yeah, I think that's right. I yeah. have good, we have good order Muppets. I think, you know, when you, I, I'm the CEO of an agency. My job is to create opportunities for growth, mm. create signal, and then with other people, shape that into actual working software. Yeah. Right? And so it's like, if I try to like keep going down the path, I'm not actually working on the growth part. Right. Yeah. So I'm that kind of. I'm that kind of leader. I was really uncomfortable with it for a while because I'm like, I'm not sitting here mentoring people directly. Mm. And that felt really weird because I'm like, I want to I want to be that. I want to be the nurturing, loving, growing person. Mm. That was my self-perception. But it turns out what I'm better at is just creating signal. Mm, I think sense. also for that idea of the lone genius who comes in, it's always something that you never expected. I'm going to give you a chance to plug Bitcoin here. Like yeah. Satoshi wrote this white paper, which was by completely Bitcoin. obscure and for years sat in relative <laughs> obscurity. Uh, by index funds, <laughs> you goof. <laughs> so Satoshi wrote this white paper that for years was pretty obscure and just shared on like email lists about cryptography yeah. and, mm. you know, tickled around on the bottom of Hacker News or whatever, and has then gone on to spawn this, you know, trillion dollar industry or whatever. And that was like kind of one of those really fundamental, fascinating breakthroughs. But A, we don't know who Satoshi is. Maybe mm. it was a team of managers. Yeah. And B, you Wild know, Wild like, that it turned out to be Drew Barrymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. It was when she was making that movie with Adam Sandler. She was yeah. just like, I this can't. Is, I can't. Do I hate I my life so much right now. I need to get on the cypherpunks mailing list. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, definitely. Bitcoin. No, but I just was mean like, you know, like you may think that you're going to code something up. Great. But I think more often than not, like with Stripe, that was a company where it was like, you're going to take on Visa and PayPal and whatever. But it was more yeah. like, we're going to have this amazing organization that's all about optimism and mobile and moving fast. And that is was the secret. Not that they wrote some brilliant new algorithm. Nothing yeah. matters like execution. Yeah. Yeah. Like there, there are 0.001% new things in the world at any given time. Yeah. And the other 99 point, and then you can do the rest of the math, things are really going to be about who can do it better. And mm. the people are pretty happy and they come to work and they keep coming to work and they don't quit and the stuff gets done and people use it and it looks good. Yeah. Yeah. And I, just like, it's all simple. Well, I mean, like at DeepMind or something, it is really complicated and they are doing new approaches to AI or whatever. But on the other hand, it's also that they just get to run 50 teraflops, you know, a day of No, training. there's that. I mean, it's like, look, I mean, I'm not, yeah, hardware. But again, like it's still, very little of it is new. Like mm. a lot of it's been around since the 70s. True. It's just, you got to keep, you just keep turning the wheel and you make a little tiny bit of progress like mm. every year. And oh, yeah. At that scale, you can turn that into something really huge. That's actually a great point, right? Like uh, all these people who are now sort of at the forefront of deep learning spent years in academic obscurity Mm -hmm. being belittled for sticking with it. And then all of a sudden, you know. Well, the processors got faster and then they started applying the techniques. And then suddenly you're able to do this thing at a certain scale and the market exists and the data Mm. sets exist. And they can do captures where you can be like, this is a car. And then like, then you get to log in in the New York Times. Have I told you my brilliant epiphany about luck in life? I'm so excited. Okay, so, you know, this is about like, yeah, you know, maybe you're a brilliant person or a star athlete or whatever, but how much of your life is actually determined by just chance, the timing of things and the moment in history that you live? So The Rock 
was a great college football player. And mm-hmm. movie. And then went on to be a pretty mediocre football player mm-hmm. and stopped after a year, mm-hmm. transferred to professional wrestling, and became the biggest star in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, if The Rock had been 10% better at football, he would have just been a middling football player his whole life and probably ended up with less money and more concussions. But he was yeah. not quite good enough to make it there and so instead ended up on this path to being the biggest star in the world. No, he, and he says an amazing thing about that. He says, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, everything is chaotic and we have no control. And we have much, much less power over anything that we ever assume that we do, Yeah, which is why people answer questions on the internet. Yeah. Because it gives them that sense of connection and control. It's true. People are desperate to show you the work and the mastery that they've done because there's so little audience. I always try to be really respectful of that. I think you drive your own luck, though, too. I mean, like, imagine in 10 years saying, I bought Bitcoin in 2019. Yeah. (laughs) And then you say, where do I apply for Social Security? So, Kent, tell me a little bit about sort of like how you got involved with computers and programming. Like, what was your introduction to this field? Yeah, so I know a lot of people, um, I, I hear so many people say, oh, yeah, I was like two years old and I started typing on the keyboard. <laughs> that, that was not my story. Um, so I, I I had a friend who was way into computers and, and I was kind of into computers, like playing video games and stuff. And, and I would make videos with him and stuff. We had tons of fun. Um, but then he decided he wanted to write a computer program that was like a game, uh, an online game. And, you know, just make millions just letting this game run forever. Tell us about and the game. What was yeah, the game so like? the game, like, I don't even remember. It, it was like a, um, you know, what? I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was it was about, but it was, it was inspired by like Diablo and and stuff, yeah. where you're this yeah. character running around, you know, fighting and stuff, um, and and then like the multiplayer online aspect would be your, um, you know, you have tons of people and you fight each other. There are lots of games like that um, yeah. back in the day. There still are collecting treasure, um, beating the bad guys, hanging yeah. with your teammates. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like World of Warcraft before that was a thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was his idea. Maybe it would have taken off if it had been finished. But um, <laughs> yeah. So I remember he he wrote a, a server in C, and I was like, wow, this is cool. Like I don't even know what it means to write a server, yeah. but like that's amazing. <laughs> uh, and and he was showing me this little interface thing that he had. It's like it's listening on port XX whatever. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I asked him to teach me, and he did. Uh, he tried, and so he's like, here's a number. You know, this is a variable. We're gonna store this number in that variable. It's like, oh, okay, uh, you know, and it's pointers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was like, okay, I, I think I can follow a number. And then he taught me a Boolean. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Um, true or false, I, I, that makes sense. And then I get into the string and I'm like, what? String is what I put on my kite. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> string, I don't know. And uh, and so he totally lost me with with strings. And so Wait, did you get pointers like, but not strings? Or were like point, you were like, sure, sure, sure. Uh, I I didn't get pointers. Either. Yeah, okay. I was, like, just like, I was like, I still don't get pointers. So yeah, I'm, like, I'm stuck as yeah, strings yeah. myself. Yeah. So he he was like, so we've got memory, and I was like, okay, yeah, I know what computer memory is, and he's like, this is, you know, memory is kind of like this, and you have a, a little pointer thing that points to this spot in memory, so a computer yeah. can know where to look up for this information. I was like, okay, I, I guess that sort of makes sense, but for some reason, I just couldn't get the string concept. And uh, he, I was like, okay, man, you can go be your, um, you know, computer programmer, man, and I'll just 
tell people how cool the game is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You uh, be the Steve Jobs, he'll be the Wozniak. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, if only that had worked out that way. Um, but uh, yeah. So I I did write like an HTML CSS page uh, at some point. I don't remember what what it was about. Probably like my name is Kent and my dog is I don't have a dog. Isn't that sad? <laughs> like that that was all that uh, that it was. But um. Yeah, so later I, I went to college at BYU and my brother went into school for electrical engineering uh, several years before me and I thought, that's cool, like he's doing stuff with computers. I still like computers. Um, I actually kind of wanted to be a video editor uh, when I uh, grew up because I did a lot of video stuff when I was a kid. And So I thought, ah, if I go into electrical engineering, then I know about computers and I can do anything with computers. And so um, I in taking that I had two introductory classes that were programming classes and I did pretty well like I got I scored A's in those classes and I I signed up to be a tutor for my classmates which like forced me to to know this stuff and it was good but I spent 16 hours a week working on homework and in front of a computer typing into this text box thing and I just did not think that was very interesting we were talking <laughs> about linked lists and yeah. compilers and like it just wasn't um what I thought would be an, a fun thing to do for eight hours every day. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I left on a mission for my church for two years. And then when I got back, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but it, I, I took a math refresher class and I did super, super bad. Uh, I got like a C in a half credit course. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm not going to do math and computers are math, right? So I'm not going to do computers either. Um, and so I kind of bounced around. I, I actually even talked to, like, I was thinking about chemical engineering and then I was like, yeah, if I don't do math, probably that's not going to work either. Um, and so it's like, okay, I'll do accounting. That's what my dad did. And, and you know, Wait, accounting is just like, Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still but math. I was like, that's, that's not like calculus stuff. Yeah. My, my right, dad right. was an accountant and, and he always told me that he didn't see the value in calculus. He's like, why, who cares about the area under the curve? Like, let's just add right. some uh, debits here. and credits. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I was like, all right, I'll, I'll try that out. Um, it was like the opposite of what I wanted to do um, all through growing up. Like, I don't want to be an accountant. My dad, like, I don't even see him during spring break. Um, but I, in, in doing that, I had to go through the business school and, um, in the business school, you have to take an information systems class, and that's like uh, applying computers to business problems. And I realized that computers weren't just about like playing games or, or fun or whatever, but there were actual like problems that you could solve in the world with computers. And I thought that was really interesting. Uh, and it was, a, I, I think, it was just so much more practical than the linked lists that, and compilers that I was learning in my programming classes. Um, you know, and I didn't care about transistors, and I didn't care about all this stuff. Like. It was interesting, but it wasn't something I wanted to do for my job. And so I, when I saw that you could use transistors and linked lists to actually build business applications that were useful to the world or, or use business applications to solve business problems, um, that was where, where things got interesting. So I switched over to information systems and I, I got a job um, just doing like this monkey work task of, of uh, taking DVDs and uploading them to YouTube. You know, <laughs> of course, we had permission from the, the DVD creators, um, but uh, it was just so much work. It's so, so annoying. I was using Handbrake, mm. uh, which is an awesome software, but like I realized that Handbrake actually has a CLI um, that you can use, and so I started, like, I just would copy-paste the CLI thing, um, and then I thought, you know what? I could probably generate that CLI string, uh, and then I could take, you know, I could you know, shell out to that thing, get back some um, some output from that, and then use that to generate some more CLI strings. So I would just like generate CLI strings. Um, 
And so like I was doing all this manually and, and I was taking in my information systems class, I was taking a, a programming class and I thought I could make a Java program to do this and using Swing for my UI and everything. And, wow. And so, yeah, it was, you know, good days. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and so I, I did it and all the whole like the UI just would shell out to Handbrake CLI, give me back some output. And I would display that out, like parse through that output and then display that to the Swing UI. And then I would interact with that UI and then send back some more CLI, um, you know, call out to the, um, the Handbrake CLI to like rip all these DVDs. And then I was like, okay, that's cool. What if I could interact with the YouTube API directly so I can go straight from, you know, ripping it from the DVD all the way up to YouTube and I don't have to do anything. And, and then they were like, wow, this is awesome. Can you start, like we also had, this company I was doing this for had a bunch of videos on their website. They wanted me to download those and upload them to YouTube. Mm. So I was like, all right, I could do that. I just hooked up a, a downloading process and they had all the metadata and everything. So I just got all that metadata and pumped it up to YouTube and I just hit a button and we sent thousands of videos to YouTube <laughs> just with this little software. Wow. Thing right. That was super licensed. exciting. All properly licensed. Um, yeah, yeah, really exactly. It was all permission-based, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting there is I've seen that question a few times uh, on the workplace uh, stack exchange, which is like, hey, I've uh, automated away most of my job responsibilities. Should I tell my boss? Should I just keep coming into work? <laughs> or like Sarah was pointing out this great question that was on there the other week, which is like, I've automated away most of my work. I figured out how to automate it. My coworkers say I'm cheating. I keep getting the like monthly bonus. So I feel like that's <laughs> such a interesting sort of origin story for a lot of yeah. programmers. It's like when you were learning it in the abstract, it wasn't for you. But when you were at mm. a job and you realized you had those skills, you could apply them to make the sort of drudge work you were doing easier. Suddenly it was like, these are useful tools. Yeah. And you find yourself mm. going into that like flow state where you're putting things together, right? Yeah, it's funny. I, I also, I love how um, there's always like, I, I feel like I see two different approaches here. Like some people are like, all right, great. I just automated away my job. I'm just going to like put my feet up and, and hang. Mm. And then other people are like, is this ethically correct? Am I going <laughs> like, should, who should, who should I be reporting this to? Like, will I be arrested? Right. Yeah. I mean, mm. this isn't the NBA. There are not uh, rules of engagement here, but I do think that is an interesting question, right? It's like the very office space thing where they come in and they're like, well, we've noticed you mostly are just on Twitter eight hours a day, but it seems like you're also getting your work done. Yeah. So we can't punish you. What are you? What's what? What's going on here? Yeah, it's like the butts and seats success metric, right? Yeah. Like, is that a success metric at your job? And right. if so, yeah, you might be cheating. Um. Mm. So, Kent, uh, after that, did you go on to work for a different company or move around and do different technology things? How did you get from there to where you are today? Yeah, so I worked at uh, this company. Uh, it was just like on the side during my when I was still at school, and I got an internship for the summer with um, uh, with another company, that uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. And I I wasn't totally convinced that I was a software engineer yet, and so I went in for business intelligence. And when I was there, um, I noticed a couple of the processes that were like not optimal, and I uh, my my mentor actually. Um, or, or the guy who was in charge of me um, and gave me tasks. Um, he wrote this little Java program to automate some of those and it was incomplete. And he said, hey, do you want to just like fix this up? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I fixed it up a little bit and I was like, oh, that's interesting. We could actually do a little bit more. And, and, and my internship turned from business intelligence to 
uh, software development um, in making this tool that I, I think they're actually still using. This was uh, like five years ago or maybe six, um, where it uh, sends out emails to uh, emails of reports to tons and tons of church leaders all over the world. And uh, it was like, it was really interesting through that experience. I was like, no, I'm not going to be a software engineer. I just use that to automate, you know, the stuff that I want or, or to automate some stuff I don't want to do so I can do stuff I want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I found out that the stuff I want to do is actually the software automation stuff. And my manager was like, hey, so I noticed you're not doing much business intelligence work <laughs> here. <laughs> like maybe like I think this internship is supposed to be about you doing that. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I uh, I'll do better, I guess. But I just kept on uh, working on this software project. And, right. and um, by the end of that that internship, they, they actually kept me on because uh, they were uh, located pretty close to BYU. They kept me on for a little bit during school. And then I finally left um, to go to another company where I was going to just do software um, because that's just what I wanted to get into. So uh, for... And that's when I, I started getting into software right. for real. And what was that first software engineering job? What were you doing there? Yeah, so I was still in school, and so it's still a part-time thing. But it was a, a company called Domo here in Utah, and uh, they do business intelligence software, actually. Um, and so they, I think they were attracted to me because I was working as a business intelligence um, engineer, but uh, I was doing software, and they actually hired me to do QA. Um, and so I was going to do um, automated QA for their REST endpoints, and I remember sitting down with the uh, the QA manager and he was he pulled up his Vim thing with all of his crazy config and crazy. whatever and he, I don't even know what he was doing and navigating all over the file system showing me these cucumber tests written in Ruby I'd never done Ruby before and I was I was super super lost and like I don't even know where to start here I don't know how these tests are run like it totally didn't make sense to me uh, and but I, I kind of slugged through it and then eventually the the team that I was supporting most of them were JavaScript engineers uh, working on the front end. And um, I remember in a standup, they said, oh, we need to get this thing done. It's really simple. Maybe we can just get Kent to do that. And so I was like, <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I don't even know what I'm doing here with this Ruby stuff anyway. And JavaScript seems like sort of like Java a little bit. I don't know what this dollar sign thing is all about, but yeah. I, like I can figure out this stuff. Um, and so I, I started picking up these little tasks and um, it didn't take too long before I really f fell in love with JavaScript and like how, oh, you mean I don't have to write the types for this stuff? Like, wow, Vara is so much easier. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, so I, I started getting into that and eventually just transitioned my, uh, from the QA team to uh, software engineer. So you finally made peace with strings. That was part of your repertoire. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so something I really loved reading in your writing was about um, kindness and open source. Can you talk a little about your view? You know, I read your thoughts on just saying thank you and things mm. like that. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you approach open source and what you enjoy seeing in the community and what makes a healthy project? Yeah, so um, I got into open source when I was still in school working at Domo, and um, my at Domo we used the Play framework. That's a Java uh, backend framework, and I remember diving into that a little bit for I don't even know why I didn't uh, at that time I was like I've left Java far behind me, but I, mm -hmm. I was uh, jumping in there for some reason, and I noticed a typo in a comment um, on one of the methods in the Play framework, and so I went to GitHub, I clicked the edit button, and I fixed the typo, 
and um and i sent a pull request that was my first pull request ever and the the guy there um who is maintaining the project i think his name is james um he said hey thank you for this and would you mind signing our cla and i did and he merged it and i i just you know like we have so many like so few characters left in our lives like we're all going to die eventually so there's a number <laughs> attached to how many characters we have left to type yeah right? and he he gave me like 32 of his characters just to oh, say I thanks uh, and so I, I think that was like a really nice gift. Um, and I gave this, uh, I, I, I know the blog post you're talking about because I, I wrote it recently um, based on the uh, conference talk I gave at All Things Open mm. um, a couple weeks ago. And it, I, I just think that the open source community that we have is the one that we're intentionally trying to build. And if we're not intentional about it, then bad actors can have a lot more power in the open source community. And I don't think that we necessarily have huge problems that are rampant all over the open source community, but there certainly are corners where we could improve. Um, and so I think we need to be intentional about those things. So can we spend five minutes just keeping it light and talking about React and what you love about it? I see you writing about it a lot. Why do you love it? Tell some React jokes. Just like throw, <laughs> throw whatever you got at me when it comes to React. Because yeah. uh, I, get, I get that that's the hip language. I don't know why. I'm not far enough yeah, along to get it. Yeah, let's educate Ben on why it's Yeah, explain language. to me why everyone loves React and what you're doing with it. All right, well, I'll try to not keep you in suspense. No, that was a React joke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, React. I, I got into React, uh, the, what is it, like four years ago? Um, and I was using AngularJS at the time, and I thought AngularJS was the bomb, and it was at the time. It was awesome. I loved it. I was so productive with it. Um, and then I heard about this React thing. I actually heard about React the first time when I was listening to a podcast on my way to ng-conf for AngularJS. So I was like, oh, React sounds interesting, but I'm going to ng-conf. Um, <laughs> and uh, eventually, like, I just tried it. I, I remember they said, you know, just try it for five minutes and, and uh, it'll come around. Because you, you look at it at first and you're like, what is this XML stuff doing in my JavaScript? Like, what is this garbage? Who thinks this is a good idea? Um, but they said, just give it five minutes. And I did. So I... I sat down, I played around with it for five minutes and I was like, oh, I get it now. Um, I don't have to learn all of this weird template DSL uh, mumbo jumbo with these double curly braces or anything. I can spend just a couple minutes learning how the syntax for this stuff is, just expand my existing JavaScript knowledge to include this JSX stuff. And now I can use all of my JavaScript knowledge with this syntax, which mm. was just a huge cha game changer for me because I can't tell you how many hours I spent diving into the Angular compiler to figure out why my template was wrong. Um, so that was, that was a huge one for me. Another thing that um, really attracted me to Angular or to, to uh, Angular in the first place was the two-way data binding. Like that demos super well. You're just like, hey, look, I didn't write any JavaScript and now these two things are staying in sync. And as cool as that is, um, it becomes a real problem when you build an application at scale and you're like, why is this value changing? I can't, there are like 30 places where this value can change and I have to go to each and every one of them to find out if that's where this value is changing. Whereas with React, um, it's all very clear where, uh, where things change. You don't have to think about time nearly as much with React. And, and time is one of the hardest things to think about when you're, you're coding software. So I, I really love that aspect about React as well. I, I think that React is really pushing things forward in a great direction. Um, and I knew so if I asked you this question, you'd get, give a passionate answer. Yeah. That was like six <laughs> uninterrupted minutes. Yeah, that's love. great. <laughs> yeah. Um, awesome. 
yeah, thanks again for having me on. So I'm on Twitter at Kent C. Dodds. My website's kentcdodds.com. You can subscribe to my newsletter. I, I shoot an email out every single week. I do remote workshops. So wherever you are in the world, I can reach you with my workshop. And I also do online courses. I have the biggest course about testing JavaScript on the internet. It's called testingjavascript.com. So if you want to get into testing, then absolutely check that out. And then I'll have a, something similar for React in general really soon. So stay tuned for that. Sweet. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate your uh, letting me be on. All right. Awesome. I, you find, like, when I was writing firmware, the most fascinating thing I found about firmware developers is there's two kinds, right? There's ones with electrical engineering backgrounds, and there's ones with computer engineering backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And it's two very specific types of code they write. If you have an electrical engineering background, you write super functional code and... Um, it's a mess, but it works great, and it really considers uh, the machinery, and there's no fluff. And when people have a computer engineering background, what they're used to is really well-organized code that could be maintained by other people, but they add abstractions that takes up memory, and it's less efficient but more readable, which was really fascinating. I think that when you get down there, it becomes less. The type of coders that you meet have a really different mentality of what is good code. It's tricky, too, because the, the true programmer cares so much about every bit of memory, right? Yeah. And we live in a time of plenty. It's yeah. just literally like somebody, half the time, a lot of these conversations, you know, we're sitting here on a pile of gold bricks. Yeah. And they're like, I saved five cents. Yeah. I've thrown away more RAM than I had in all of the 90s. That's exactly right, right? <laughs> like, I just, you'd, 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 you know, 32 megs would cost yeah. about four or five zillion dollars. And you had to worry. And the, the good programmers had to worry about all that. Yeah. And they... You know, are we their little annoying garbage children? Yeah, sure. Yeah. That is it. <laughs> Everything that people say about like millennials and Gen Z applies yeah. to people who are programming now compared to programmers back in the day. Yeah. Like, they don't understand the value of anything. We had a great blog post out that was kind of about you just finished a CS degree or you just went through a boot camp and now you've got your first job in a real software company. Mm -hmm. You're going to be working with a lot of people and you're going to be working at scale. Mm. Here's how that's actually totally different than everything you've mm. learned and all the different like tools and systems you're going to need to thrive when you're working, yeah. collaborating with your coworkers, working at scale and having customers. So I know both of you have run, running companies and also managing lots of engineers. So talk to me a little bit about the difference between, you know, like, hey, I'm working on my own personal project at home I'm writing my own language mm -hmm. for managing projects and the kind of skills and the kind of tools you need to use when you're working at a big company at scale on something. Fascinating. It's like how we don't teach high schoolers how to manage a checking account. Mm -hmm. Like no one tells you how to, in your computer science program, what Outlook is and what it means. I, I, you know, I think a bit, a good illustration, I went, I was at a job once where we had a new guy start and he was just out of a CS program. And he sat down and he looked at our intranet and he said, this is garbage. This is like who, this is, this is ugly and this system is made really poorly. And what he didn't know is the person that built that system was sitting right behind him. Mm -hmm. And that guy had the most difficult time at the job for the next six months and then finally just burnt out because he had made enough people mad. And they don't teach you those skills in any program. Well, I think, look, look at a comp sci degree. You have to learn... Top to bottom, how a computer works, and you have to do work that a professor or teaching assistant can evaluate. Yeah. Right. And that has to be your independent work, and it has to demonstrate that you have 
a good deep understanding of algorithms, mm. sort of. And it's also very, they tend to teach a lot of programs. They teach, I don't have a comp sci degree, by the way. I have an English degree, like an animal. And <laughs> I, but I do have a minor in creative writing. Um, <laughs> but as you go, you know, they like to show you like, okay, here's an operating system. Here's a file system. Here's a kernel. There's a, uh, Andrew Tannenbaum has like one of the great textbooks on this. And it's great mm. to read. It's like, I can't remember what it's called. It's the principles of operating system, something like that. And it's really valuable, good stuff to know. And then you enter, you go get a job. Mm. And the job is like, okay, we're going to do a React front end. And the back end's all going to be on Amazon Web Services. Yep. No algorithms. Yeah, No. No, you don't need to know any of this. No, yeah. it's purely, it's a yeah. ton of configuration, except that you're much better at it and much faster and more thoughtful if you actually know all the stuff underneath. Yeah. So it's a bizarre degree in the way that a lot of modern software is practiced, right? Because you're not writing a database or, or an operating system. Yeah. You are using all those things and configuring and organizing information and, and programs like one, one level above. And... So I think that feels really weird. Like your person comes in and is like, this software is bad. This software is good. And it's like your job is actually to coordinate and listen and assemble things. And then every now and then it's like, oh, wait a minute. I can optimize this. I yeah. can. And then maybe you'll like, you know, sometimes it works. Somebody will be like, I, I think I can do this in Rust and really speed it up. And we're like, God, there you go. That's <laughs> it. That's the real stuff. Yeah, um, but usually that ends up with now you have one thing in your entire code base that's in Rust and then that person leaves. <laughs> I think the closest that let, you get. Let us have some fun over here. Come on. Don't stop doing that. I don't want to update another configure. It's if I have to update like one more YAML file, right? Like just, <laughs> let's write a little Rust, and you know, what about type theory? You know, it's, that so. happened with Backbone forever. I've like mm. had, I've been involved in three really big code bases where there's like one page in Backbone, and it's mm -hmm. like, oh man, who did this? Who mm -hmm. did this? Show yourself. Backbone was, well, it's like everything. It was good for a minute. And then the world was like, actually, and now they're still Backbone, still Facebook there. Facebook came along and was yeah. like, forget this. Yeah, we're going to make our own web. I think the closest you get is, I remember my brother was in a computer engineering program and he took a Python class and it was the first time they had a group project. And he's like, man, this is so hard. I'm pulling all this weight. Mm -hmm. Two of these people are doing nothing. I keep trying to get them on the phone. And he described it all to me. And it was all people problems and less engineering problems. And I was like, welcome to the workplace. Yeah, this is real, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and collaborating with designers, working with product managers. Yeah. It's not, now, there are environments where you can go and you know use your algorithms to work on low-level file systems. So, mm. Like the big internet giants have lots of that work. Yeah, like true. A pure comp sci person can go and succeed. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's like, but it feels like most of the work is a few levels above um, that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was in here, which I am sort of like vaguely familiar with or feel like I understand is Git and then GitHub, GitLab. Mm -hmm. And so that is one of those places where you're doing a lot of this suddenly collaborating with people. You're pushing and pulling and they're looking at your stuff, accepting, reviewing it, branching it, branching it, forking it. Mm -hmm. So... I guess, you know, that is now one of the things that you really have to master if you're going to be doing stuff at scale with coworkers, right? You don't have a choice, It's but it's sort of built into the culture, and it feels like GitHub has abstracted away a lot of the really hard parts of Git. Yeah. So it, it's like you're basically going to follow along for the first few months and be like, what is happening? Yeah. And then you don't need to know rebase for a long time. You don't need to know right. what that means. You just need to know to do it. I had, I remember talking to an engineer who worked with us. He was freelance, and he confessed one night. He was like, you know, 
I've been watching reviews come in and people keep saying LGTM, which means looks good to me. Go ahead yeah. and bring this code into the master code base. He's like, I was convinced it was, let's get that money. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's much better. <laughs> well, the reality was, right, like he... It didn't matter. He was like, oh, okay, let's get that money. <laughs> let's Boom. get that money. Hit the same button and everything's good, right? <laughs> right. So there's always going to be – you can, it's a little – you're just sort of following culturally how people are, are doing things. Right. And that can come down to like you have to indent the code a certain way or you yeah. need to – those conversations get really heated because frankly like an enormous amount of computer science for as it is applied in the – on a regular project is done. Like you're not going to go out and come up with a new algorithm for organizing, you know, tree-based data structures. So you're just not probably not going to do that. Don't listen to him. You might. You might. You, well, might. you might. But you're <laughs> have gonna, faith in you're, yourself. You're going to do that. You're probably not going to do that in the .NET environment here at Stack Overflow. <laughs> you're probably going to do that at Don't listen to him, no, Benjamin. getting your master's degree in computer science. You might be pushing forward a little right, bit. Right. Or, um, yeah, so, but don't I call guess that to Nick Craver. Another question that came to my mind then was like, this seems like one of those like two things, you know, and I read your wire piece, you were like in the world before GitHub and Stack Overflow programming was very different. So mm. like before GitHub, what, what, what was the collaboration like? Like, was there different tools for it? Was collaboration not done that way? You just didn't deploy as much? Like what happened before Git? Man. Well, first it, of all, people were all in the same room a lot of the yeah. time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You pass around a hard drive yeah. or I mean, like that was before source control yeah. you'd pass around a hard drive and you'd have that like final, final, zero, zero, one, final, final done. Yeah. Or you used version control, but it was subversion or, or CVS or even back in the day, RCS. Like that's been around for 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. But ultimately this idea that like it just remote was more unusual and the idea mm. people kind of needed to get together and, yeah. and work it out. And software architecture felt like it was more of a defined role like people really needed to spend the time because you didn't have this iterative style where you just kept updating yep. and kept updating so there was a real sense of like this is what we're going to ship and it's going to have these components yeah uml what's that yeah UML. uml which if people have big seen diagrams it, little stick figure guys and like yeah and you put your octagons this, this is where java comes from yeah right yeah like, <laughs> no because the way that ob object-oriented programming is like it was a way to organize people as well as programming and yeah. programs. And so you'd be like, you know, you're going to go over here and you're going to work on the, the thing that writes to the database and deals with all the data. Mm. You're over here and you're going to work on the user interface. But we both agree this is what it's going to look like in That's the That's right, because we have these stick figures. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> and, and there's a certain scale and a certain time frame. So, I mean, if you're thinking like, we're going to get the first version of this and it's probably going to take a year to 18 months. Yep. And we're going to spend three months figuring out every object interface. We're going to talk it all It's like through. building a house. That's right. Sitting around yeah. the table, you get those big printouts. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and the documentation was really important in a really specific way. And, and so the culture was different that way. It was more like people sitting around tables. Code reviews were, were really critical and, and not as dynamic. It was people in a room. Yes. I mean, it still is. But it's just so there's still a lot of that. But boy, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think just people can just say, hey, what do you think of this code? Do you think it should fit in here and we can release it in an hour? And somebody goes, let's get that money. Yeah, let's get that money. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed Thank the interview. You. you can find me, Ben Popper, the director of content at Stack Overflow, at Ben Popper on Twitter. Yeah, and I'm Sarah J. Chips, director of public QA here at Stack Overflow. You can find me, Sarah J. Chips, on Twitter.com. And Paul is not here for this recording session, but. I'm Paul Ford, and you can find me at F -Train. F Train on Twitter. Post like. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.